Hi, it's Steve Indigit Sport Law. Leave me a message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Hey, Steve. It's Dina. You aren't going to believe what just came across my desk. We need to chat. Give me a call. Welcome to the latest edition of Sportopia. We're so excited to share our knowledge and have conversations about healthy human sport. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the exciting world of Policy 101. And we're going to get real about the policies your organizations need and the implications of policy work in sport. But before we do that, Steve, I want to know what's coming across your desk this week that you want to chat about. I knew you were going to ask that question. So I jotted a few things down in advance because every day seems like there's a lot coming across my desk. Uh, Just yesterday, I think I had eight engagement calls with clients and that was uh, on a Monday. You mean it's not Groundhog Day? (laughs) Sometimes it feels like it, but but the things that I, I feel are, are hot topics, I would say, for, for me this week relate to the independent management of, of cases. So the independent third party, it seems that there's a lot of, of course, moving pieces with regards to the safe sport movement and the creation of OSEC. And, and what does that mean for the management of, of complaints? And there are people who are currently working in that space as independent third parties, and now there's new players that want to get into the the marketplace as well. So I've been I've been approached by some of those new new bodies who are interested in trying to get into the space, learning about it, and trying to provide a quality uh, a project. And and my biggest concern, really, with respect to independent third parties, is is multifaceted. Of course, is one: do they have knowledge about the sector? Do they have knowledge about policy implementation? Which We'll talk a little bit about today and as well as do they have the ability to keep costs at a low. We just recently had a client subcontract an investigation and the investigator was given a budget of $5,000 and then uh, four weeks later came back with a bill of $15,000 and also saying they required they would they wish to interview 15 more people. Mm-hmm. Um, so having cost controls on these type of issues is super important, in my opinion, and I'm not trying to disregard the importance of the investigation or the complaint management process, but the cost associated to it is is a very large issue. So that's that's one big topic. The other two are, are always bylaw implementation and updating Yay. governance models. And and also starting to get some steam, Dina, is match manipulation. And you might remember you and I attended a CCES conference about three or four years ago, and it is starting to become a hot topic or at least a topic to which sports starting to pay a little bit of attention to. How about you? Sounds like you're keeping busy. Imagine that. Well, I'm going to call, I'm going to speak about three C's. The first C that's coming across my desk, and it's hard to actually keep up with it, is crisis. I, I'm doing a lot of uh, crisis support these days. Any Anything ranging from developing communications plans that explain you know, the who, what, where, when, why of a situation and trying to be really mindful and in alignment with our values when we're communicating the rationale or the decision of any one thing. And related to crisis is actually people support. So the second C is coaching. And I'm doing 
so much more leadership coaching. Uh, and I'm tapping into my grief and loss work, Steve, because as you know, it's really hard to lead and coach and compete these days in, in high level sport. And so I'm, I'm working with a lot of leaders and sport coaches to help restore and maintain their, their energy because so many of them are so depleted and have been since before the pandemic. And then the third C is culture. So this is the work, the space that's bringing me so much joy. And it is in part because it, it feels validating, not going to lie. I'm using my research from 12 years ago and this ethic of an orientation of leadership that talks about managing by values and values is the language of culture and culture right now is eating sport for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I'm delighted. I think our one of our blogs is speaking to that more about what is the sport culture index, our partnership and alliance with Inner Logic, and really starting to give some data, some information to our leaders around you know the the people components in their culture and the systems components and how do they make improvements around this thing we call culture. So, so those are some of the things that I'm, uh, I'm tracking these days. You're staying busy and hopefully out of trouble as well. Well, not sure about that. However, that's a great segue because we're going to talk about, you know, the purpose of policies, why they matter. And I think because this is really your domain, maybe I'll play Oprah to, uh, to you today and, and, and help help our listeners understand, you know, why policies are important. So maybe we'll start, we'll start there, Steve. Why do you think it's important for people to have policies and maybe describe in, in Steve terms, lay people's term, you know, what is, what is the purpose of having a policy? Before I answer that question, Dina, it's interesting. And this is my 20th year working at sport law. And, and 20 years ago, when I started being interested in this space, I always thought in the back of my mind, how many bylaws can you write? How many policies can you write? Can I make a full-time career doing amateur sport consulting or, or legal work? And I, I truly believe that wasn't the case. So I was doing a lot of different things at that time, coaching, swimming, refereeing, basketball, taking any court of legal file I could get because I truly didn't believe that there was the ability to make a full-time career in this space. And, and I sit here 20 years later and say I was absolutely wrong. And, and how many policies and bylaws can you write? And the answer is a lot. <laughs> and the infinity the sign. It's the infinity sign as laws are changing, cultures changing, everything's changing or updated or the way we did things two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago is different than the way we're doing, doing it today. So one of the first queries, of course, is why are policies so important? And let's look at the negatives if you don't have a policy. So one of the one of the favorite questions that I have, and, and those who are listening to the podcast who have worked with me will know this question, or hopefully they know this question off by heart. They call me with a query, and my response always is, what does your policy say? Survey says. <laughs> Survey says, we have one. We use the national sport bodies. We use the provincial sport bodies. We don't have one. We copied one from the internet. 
there's lots of different re responses. And, and the worst one is, is we don't have one because then we don't have a roadmap to help resolve our issue. And, and fundamentally policies are a contract. It's a form of a contract between the organizations and its members. You get to come and play your sport and we'll provide you coaching services and, and a league to play in. But on condition of that, you must abide by our contracts which includes our policies. So if there are no policies, there are no contracts. So failure to have a policy or organizations run into trouble when they don't have them, or they do have them, but they're contradictory. And one of the ones that we've had a learning with over the last 20 years is harassment and conduct. And we used to separate those two policies. So harassment would take us to the left and, and conduct or code of conduct would take us to the right. And how do you determine whether somebody's conduct or actions was which policy? So contradictory policies became a problem because of course the respondents in a case would be looking for the proper policy or the one that advantaged them versus the one that may be best to, to help resolve the issue. So Having policy sets the guidelines for your actions, but again, watching out for those pitfalls of making sure that they are complete and that they work for your organizations. I can't tell you, Dina, how many times I've seen the NSO will appoint the case manager or the PSO or PTO will appoint the case manager. No, they won't because you've adopted their policy and applied it to your jurisdiction, which they may or may not want to get involved in. The other pitfalls are failure to follow your policy. And I shake my head routinely, and this was a couple of weeks ago. Hi, Steve, I just want to pick your brain on a, on a policy implementation. It's a, a discipline matter. And we appointed the board to decide it. And I said, okay, I'm confused though. Why did you pick the board to decide it when it specifically says in your policy, you're going to have an independent panel? Oops. Oops. Well, I didn't want to do that. We thought it was more appropriate to be in, in the board's discretion. And, and I appreciate that, but your policy then doesn't work for you. And you need to change your policy because now you're in breach of your policy. And if that person appeals the decision, an appeal is based really on whether or not you followed your policy. So if you fail to do so, uh, you're, you're going to lose. You're going to have the decision overturned. So properly following your policy is so crucial. And the last thing I'll speak about is that the policy doesn't fit your culture. There could be multiple layers of decision makers or multiple steps that an organization doesn't have the capacity to implement. So making sure a policy works for you is super, super important. And that gives you, like I said, a guide for your actions. So Dina, you're, you're my client. You call me, you say, I have a problem. I say, what does your policy say? And we both look at it together and we figure out that step one is this and step two is that. Mm -hmm. And it also helps you avoid conflict. This is not because you're going after the director, coach, athlete who's quote, quote, a pain in the butt. You're doing this because your policy says ABC and not because of the history we have together. And I know you hate me and this is retribution. No, it's not. It's there to help me manage a concern or a problem in accordance with my policy. So as a foundation, you know, you have your articles of incorporation, your bylaws, 
and your policies. It's so important to be proactive to have them when you have a, a concern or, or an issue you need to manage. I, uh, I really appreciate the way that you explained that, Steve. And, and I'll add a couple of things before I, I ask my second question. And, you know, what's coming up for me is I've been in sport since 1991. So that's a, that's a moment. I won't years. tell you where I was in 1991. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, I find, you know, the way that I speak about policies is we're keeping our promises right? This is a way for us to think about reasonable expectations that a reasonable person would have of the way in which we're going to manage certain common issues that occur in an organizational setting. And one of the things that I am really mindful of, I remember, you know, in the latter part of the 90s, early 2000s, policies could last like some of them up to a decade. And now what you're pointing to is the review of these policies. Oh, it's almost on a yearly basis, right? Every two years, like the legal framework is changing. And what I would be really mindful of is most of sport is delivered by by well-intentioned volunteers. And those volunteers are cycling through usually as fast as their kids are involved in the sport. So it's not surprising to me When I hear you say, you know, people are either contradicting their policy in in terms of their behaviors and their management, or they don't know where the policy is, the latest version, they haven't been able to upkeep the management of that because they're these well-intentioned volunteers don't have the time to keep up with the level of complexity of what it means to run a 21st century organization. So what I appreciate is you know, think of of it this way, your policies are a way for you to organize your affairs, keep your promises, ensure responsible governance and administration, help you mitigate and minimize risk and make better decisions. Otherwise, it's like roll the dice, right? It depends on the flavor of the day. For sure. And my mind is racing all over the place, Dina, with what you've said from the perspective of, I agree, you know, Clients come to us and say, we need new policies. And I'll say, well, which ones do you need? And most of the time they say, we have no idea. So we have created you know, a working list that we've established over the years to say, these are the policies we think that you need. You may not necessarily need all of them, but here's a, here's a laundry list of policies that you might want to consider. And on that list is approximately 25 to 30 policies. And as you've said, when you present that list to this volunteer board, they look at you like you're crazy because they they just don't have the capacity, the expertise to create, to review and to implement. And, and I don't disagree with that, but we've talked about this in previous podcasts where being an administrator or a volunteer in sport these days is extremely complicated and you need to know a lot of different moving pieces. We all recognize that. And I don't expect a volunteer board member to have expertise in privacy, conflict of interest, accessibility, EDI, complaint management, safe sport. It is a lot of different portfolios to to manage. But I, I alluded to it before, when you have an issue or a crisis, and there is no policy to guide you through it, it is a massive problem. Mm -hmm. I remember one time a client of ours 
opened up a hotline, a safe sport hotline. And they actually let me know in advance. They said, hey, Steve, we've opened up a hotline. I said, oh, that's fabulous. That's a great place for people to go and, and have a safe conversation about what their concerns are. And, and three weeks later, they called me and they said, hi, Steve, somebody called the hotline. What do we do? And I had to almost laugh and say, why are you asking me what to do? You should have been proactive to know if the phone rang, what, what to do with it. And it literally took us three weeks to help manage the process because we were trying to find different policies to apply within the local, within the province, within the national. And when we get into a little bit more in-depth conversation about the intricacies of policies, jurisdiction is hugely important. So if a national sport federation says, we're only going to manage what happens at the national level, well, you can't use their policies because their jurisdiction is very limited. So just having the policies in place is, is fundamental. And like I said at the beginning, I don't believe that you need to know necessarily everything about implementation of those policies. There are people like us, doesn't have to be us, but there are people like us who have the ability to help you walk through that process. About five years ago, Dina, and I'm angry at myself that I didn't come up with this, so I applaud the client who did, said, we would like to have consistent policies within our sport. And the first thing we did was we did a policy assessment across the country. So it was the national sport and the 10 provinces and, and, and the three territories. So 13 organizations, 14 organizations. Guess how many policies were across that sector? Do I win something if I guess? Absolutely. Right? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm guessing there might be over 600. You, you, I probably told you this story because that was very, very accurate. The number was there were 600 separate policies across this one sports sector. And, and of course, that's just crazy to think that there's that many layers of duplication and, and maybe bureaucracy. So does it help to explain why we see so much conflict between national sport organizations and their member associations, the provincial territorial sport organizations, do you think? Well, I think it creates inconsistency for sure. And, and I've always said, when we talk about conduct, being a good person in BC, I hope is the same as being a good person yeah. in Nova Scotia or PEI, seven hour flight away. So I do am a very big advocate for policy alignment, policy consistency. There can be bumps in the road when we talk about certain policies or certain legislation is different in each province and territory. Privacy is a great example where BC... And Alberta, off the top of my head, I know for a fact have different legislation than the rest of the country. So there's some little minor inconsistencies there that we'd have to be cognitive of, but a lot of the policies that we create can be consistent. And that creates expertise in your sports system. Alberta can call BC and say, hey, we have a complaint. We have the same policy. How did you do it? Right. And, and share that knowledge. So I'm a big fan of that policy alignment if it's possible. But yes, there are some bunny holes in it that you have to be very concerned about. And we'll talk about that, I think, as we get more into the, the establishment of policies. Yeah, so I appreciate that, Steve. And I, I think before we get into, you know, what are some of the key things that we want to know in drafting good policies? I'm curious, in your opinion, what are some of the hot topics right now in the evolution of things that used to be more the way that we did business around here that have now been elevated to the, the level of, of policy? Can you name a few? Well, 
I will say it probably changes on a on a bi-monthly or semi-monthly or sorry, semi-annual basis. But I'd say right now for sure EDII is is massive. Is is sport trying to figure out how to create a more welcome and opening and an equal environment. That's a definitely a hot topic. The safe sport movement is, of course, extremely important right now. There's the moving pieces of safe sport in Canada is a, a moving target. We just had the establishment of OSIC back in, in June of 2022, and sport are still transitioning into understanding the the jurisdiction of OSIC. And, and then what if they don't assume jurisdiction? How do we still manage those complaints? That's the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. Yes, for those thank who aren't you. familiar with the new four-letter word in Canadian sport. What was interesting, Dina, yesterday when I was speaking to a, a third party who was interested in case management, and I could tell they were new to the sports sector. So I always like to challenge people, say, if you understand that OTP funds COC for AAP carding to fund it down to PSOs and NSOs, then you're definitely part of our circle. Yeah, that's hilarious. Well, I want to come back to that because it seems to me that if newer entrants want to come into sport and most people do not understand the interconnectedness of sport and the jurisdictional differences, they might think, well, we can apply our processes and our logic around uh, ITP services to this Canadian sports sector, but they don't understand the complexities, which to your earlier point means that I think we're gonna struggle financially. In my opinion, some of the initiatives that are pan Canadian right now might bankrupt sport. There just isn't enough resources, time, energy, goodwill, and money to be able to uh, handle some of these massive change initiatives that are gonna require so much more support and implementation, but where is all the, the resourcing going to come from? And I think policy and the implementation of that, uh, you know, is a big player for this. One of the things that I'm going to share in terms of a, a really, be, I think it's a fantastic initiative that is in the domain of, of proactivity. We worked with a national sport organization and this Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport to create a true sport policy. And that policy, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, that policy sits often when we're doing safe sport implementation and policy as the first overarching policy that really dictates, it's like an overarching guiding statement on the organization's commitment to both manage by values and implement the true sport principles on the field of play. And so what I have found when we've worked with organizations to socialize it it just declares like we have these core values we've defined them we have promoted them we're using them intentionally in how we make decisions and then alongside that we have entrenched our commitment to true sport principles on the field of play and we're going to do our part as an association to ensure that those principles around healthy sport development for all participants are being lived on the field so that's an example of what we would say, you know, an overarching ethos of care to ensure that the participants and the decision makers are aligned around how we're going to treat each other. So I, I love that uh, we're, we're encouraging more and more people to signal the commitment through that policy. Well, this is more your side of the shop, Dina, than mine. As I like to say, unfortunately, a lot of the work that I do is in policy per se is proactively writing them 
but reactively implementing them. And I think one of the great things that you, your side of the shop does or the leadership side of our shop does is that more proactive work. And I, I do agree. I think the true sport policy is that proactive side and, and culture. We keep hearing these hot words in sport, safe sport, oh, sick. Now we're hearing culture, culture reviews. And I do really think the true sport policy can have a big impact on that and impact on sport by, as you've said, implement the true sport principles in your decision-making, in your proactive education of coaches, athletes, parents, to let them know what your, your club or sport organization is about. And, you know, it, it might feel frustrating sometimes for us, Steve, because too often, if, if we're on the end of the crisis or the end of the issue, by the time it drops into our lap, we're frustrated because if only they had implemented their policy, if only they had made a commitment to manage by values or made a commitment to mitigate risks, then we, you know, we might've avoided all of these things that have come to pass. So there's the, the frustration. And, you know, on behalf of us, usually it's because we care so much, right? We, we want to see people thrive in sport. And, and so we're, we're finding it really, really clunky right now. And in large part, it's because the sector itself, the system is so overburdened and it's almost like now death by the, the rotating policy. And I've heard athletes say enough with all the policies, let's make sure that we're actually implementing the policies that, that we already have. So I'm curious, you know, for you, let's get into the practicalities. What are some of the most important things when we're advising clients on how to draft good policy? Can you maybe speak about the details? I know you love being three feet off the ground. So, so let's get lawyerly right now. Yeah, drafting policies is is really important. And the way you do it is is super important too. And as I said before, I, you know, using Google or using a, a different sport or your own sports policies or templates is great. It's a great starting point, but making sure they work for your organization is crucial. And how do we make sure it works for your organization? One is we need to know who we want it to apply to. So the applicability of a policy is fundamental. And interesting enough, Dean, as you've alluded to, when we do policy work with clients, it's not about writing the code of conduct saying, you know, don't drink and drive and don't use your cell phone while driving and, and, and don't curse and, and don't do all these negative things. That's not the stuff we spend time on. It's talking about who do we want it to apply to and, and when. And there's, of course, a lot of, I'll say it bluntly, politics and sport where the PSOs and the PTOs don't want the NSO involved in their business. And the NSO doesn't want to be involved in the PSO business because they don't have the resources to do it. But one of the things that I love in governance and policy writing is flexibility. And I'm assuming we're allowed to swear on our podcast, but as I like to say, the shit runs uphill in sport. So if your club doesn't manage an issue properly. It's going to the province or territory and, and it goes all the way up to the NSO. So having proper policy to which allows you to govern yourselves is super important and making sure the exclusions that you have don't preclude you from applying a policy to a particular situation when it's necessary or it could be necessary to do that. So jurisdiction, 
who do we want it to apply to? When do we want it to apply to is probably the two most important things we look at with respect to policy writing. And then you've alluded to the frequency, Dina, of updating them. If an organization has that 20 to 30 policy range, and I've said this many times, I hope you have the policies, I hope they work for your organization, and I hope you never look at them because that means things are going well. It's likely when you pull out a policy that there's a negative incident occurring that you have to manage. But let's say you have 20 and you pick, you want to you want to review two every year. Well, that's 10 years till you get through all 20. So staying on top of this is super important, as well as after you've implemented or used a policy, debrief. What worked? What didn't work? We actually, I had a a conversation with a a PSO last week, and we had done some policy work for them. I'm making dates up, but I believe it was 2019. And they've had uh, four years of implementation of these policies and have come back with some comments and saying, this worked for us and this didn't work for us. And can we talk about it? And and we will do that in the next couple of weeks to learn about the way they had the positives of implementation and the negatives of implementation. So really fundamentally, most of the context of policy is pretty, I'll say, easy to write. It's really having that dialogue about jurisdiction and applicability is really important. And I'll give you a quick example, social media. Dina, you and I are members of a soccer team in Ottawa. We start bantering negatively about each other on Facebook or what's what's popular now, Snapchat or Instagram TikTok. <laughs> or TikTok, exactly. And is that a soccer club issue? Well, that conduct is occurring outside of us practicing and playing our games. So is that a club issue? And my response to that as a good legal answer is maybe. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because, yes, we may want to have jurisdiction over that conduct because it's having an impact on the team and the way you and I relate together or work together versus, well, no, we don't want it because it's not having an impact on the organization. So it's really... I love flexibility in policy writing to decide, yes, we can be involved or no, we can't. Because when we set a hard limitation on jurisdiction, I promise you there will be a situation that comes up where you're like, damn, we need to have jurisdiction, but our policies don't allow it. Mm -hmm. You said a number of important things. And so for the listeners here, you know that when you call Steve and he says, maybe, or his two favorite words to me are, it depends. And then an hour later, we finally, you know, have resolved the issue. I I love that. So the other thing, though, in terms of things that we need to think about for policy in this, Steve said, this is more my domain, is do your policies, which are really about keeping promises of how we're going to manage through a situation, do they actually reflect your values? One of the cool projects I did a few years ago, because the organization had made a commitment to manage by values was to take their core values and to do an audit of all of their policies through the prism of their values. And I'll give you an example, Steve. One of their values was inclusivity. And so when they looked at their nomination criteria and they realized, well, maybe we're not being as inclusive. We haven't specifically said that we want to have gender balance on our boards and and we know how important diversity is so it was such a, a an important kind of awakening or a lens to ensure that we say that we care about these values 
we've defined these values. Now we want to ensure that those values are actually being entrenched in the culture of the organization. And, and for people to understand how this all links together, when we do manage by values and we're looking at all parts of the organization through that prism, it allows us to move through our culture in a way that feels authentic. And my sense is, especially this next generation of leaders, they really want to feel like they belong in the culture that they're working or volunteering in. And one of the ways they're checking is, you know, we say this language matters to us because that's what the values are. It's an expression of, of our commitments. How is that being translated in practice? And, and that translation is, is done through policy. So this is where it starts to be socialized in a way that feels genuine. And when that happens, what I have observed is there's a decrease in unnecessary conflict, right? In the tension between you and me that, that isn't really supporting healthy alliances between the different people that are working together in the sector. So I think that everything that you've shared is really important. And I, I guess, you know, recently, Steve, I had a conversation with a club. We're doing some really cool work. The board actually took the governance essentials that we've created, and now they all have the same language. And so when we start talking about policies, they're not like the deer in the head, headlights. They're actually leaning in and saying, well, how many policies should we have and so I want to turn it over to you and say, you know, there are so many policies. When I started in sport, there were maybe three and now there's 33. So can you maybe help our clients and our, our listeners understand and untangle what are the must do policies and maybe the ones that you might consider nice to have? I'm, I'm laughing, Dina, because of the number. I'm looking at a proposal we recently sent to some clubs and some PSOs and PTOs with respect to policy development. And on my list, I have 28 separate policies. And we break them down into three categories. We break them down into right now the safe sport movement. So there's the proactive policies of how we want people to act with respect to culture as well as to conduct. And then there's the reactive policies where we talk about how do we manage a complaint. The secondary subtitle would be governance. We start talking about bylaws. We start talking exactly what you just spoke about, you know, nominations, protocols, governance tools, director's guides, director's assessments, and, and committee terms of reference. You know, it's so important. I know it's I know it's work intensive, but I think it's so important to have a paper trail of when we talk about governance and we talk about decision-making, it starts with the board. And then we pass that authority down to committees, the high performance committee, the selection committee, the whatever committee. And then of course there's staff who also get decision-making particularly with respect to operations. So noting how we do that is important. And that way we understand people's uh, decision-making authority and jurisdiction as we, we spoke about before. And I love the nominations process for a board. Um, so creating a nominations protocol is really important. I do recognize it's a lot of work, but I do think it, it pays off. The third category would be administrative policies. A lot of them are legally required. So in Canada, we're legally obligated to have privacy policies, accessibility policies, workplace harassment policies, and then there's some nice, uh, in Ontario, you're required to have a concussion policy. So there are legal requirements with respect to the must-haves. And then there's the highly recommended should-haves. 
you know, when we talk about diversity and gender identity, impairment and accommodation with the legalization of marijuana, that's become a very hot topic with respect to how do we manage that in the work environment as well as the sporting environment. Some of those, do you need to have travel policy? If you don't have staff, of course, you don't need a human resources policy. Nice to have financial management policy, like to know who has signing authority. And now with the with the authorization of electronic transfers, who who can do that? So there's a lot of different moving pieces when we talk about policy, but we really right now we break them down into safe sport governance and administration. And and one of the things you'll probably draw my attention to is we don't have operational policies. And the reason that we don't, sport law doesn't get too involved in operational policies is, is that's the sports expertise, the rules of the sport, the transfers, the eligibility of athletes. That's more something that the organization would have that expertise. And we for sure review them. We look at them for clarity and consistency and proper language, but it's very rare where we'll tell an organization on how to transfer an athlete from one club to the other. Yeah, I would add to that, you know, recently, well, now it's not recently now, back in 2007, when you were still in high school, apparently. Correct, correct. I was, Pre- uh, I, was <laughs> I was helping to run uh, a national initiative called the Risk Management Project. And we, we served, you know, well over 100 sport organizations, mainly NSOs, and equipping them with better capacity to mitigate and manage risks when they, when they came to pass. And out of that, we called it the risk management policy suite, where it's really helpful to have a policy around how you're going to manage risk. And guess what? The first on the list is make sure you have a core set of values that you monitor and measure and you've defined with the people that are inside your ecosystem. We recommend a process to mitigate and manage risk. We recommend having a risk register for the high level risks that are keeping people up at night and that you have a process to review your policy. Right next to that, because of what happened, this was pre-pandemic, we advised on a travel policy that would just be really specific about things like if you're sending people internationally, true story, a woman was traveling on her own to a country that was problematic for women traveling unaccompanied, and they didn't have a policy around safety measures. So being really clear about, you know, expectations of travel, and this was pre-pandemic. So you can imagine the policies now are flying off the shelf. And another example of one is an emergency action plan. So having a policy, especially around your events, many, many organizations that we serve, Steve, you know, this are our host of events. So having that entrenched in policy just is like a breath of fresh air. And here's where it translates into, I think, inspired action. I think you and I, we make a business of reading the tea leaves and we can anticipate that insurers are going to be requiring more and more evidence of organizations that they have their policy house in order. And so I think the more that organizations have created, you know, a rhythm around how they're drafting their policies, how they're engaging their people in a conversation around the policies how they're socializing it, how they're reviewing and monitoring it. The more we have that kind of in the process of of implementing and upholding our commitment to be, you know, good stewards of the organization, I think you're going to see people, people's trust level in the institution go up. So as we round our time together, Steve, I'm wondering, you know, maybe give us a sense of once it's implemented, this might be more my domain, but I'm really curious what needs to happen? So we've got the policy. It's on our website. 
Now what? Well, I, I, I'm not sure everybody puts it on their website. So that's first and foremost. Sport Canada and the Canadian Olympic Committee last year put out good governance codes or put out recommendations about good governance. And fundamentally, one of them was post your policies, make them accessible. I have a bit of a pet peeve when you have a policy manual. So I'm looking for your confidentiality policy, but I have to download 196 pages and find it. Try and make your policies accessible to your members, to your participants, easy to read, easy to find, have a policy tab on your website and, and list the policies individually that they can click on and find what they're looking for. That for me is, is, is paramount. How are people supposed to know what the policies are is if they're not accessible? And then being proactive, and, and I'll flip it back to you, Dina, because I think Educating people about what we have and what exists is super important. So how do we do that you know, proactively in a positive manner? I'm, I'd, I'd like you to answer that before I hand the baton back to you. I have a client right now who are doing foundationally a lot of policy work, governance work, really starting from scratch. They're an organization that's been around, I think, 50, 60 years. So it's been a very well-established group and they want to become best in class. And one of the things that they've actually done is they've gone out to their members to, to advertise the work that they're doing to say, look, we're taking this seriously. We're updating, we're working with sport law who are experts in this area. And we're trying to be proactive and successful to create a positive environment. So I'm really, I really like that, not from the perspective of promoting us. I, we're fine from that perspective, but I just love the fact that they're promoting that this is something that's important to them to create that foundation, which I really believe it is to create that safe and welcoming environment. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that story. I think it segues nicely into now that you have these policies, what do you do next? What I would offer is typically policy is writing is done by the board right, for most of the sport organizations and or in conjunction with the CEO or the executive director or general manager. And so a lot of that is rolling up your sleeves in advance and being transparent about it. So my sense always is be as transparent as possible unless there's a justifiable reason not to be. And so telling the story now of we've done this work, we were supported by a credible third party that gave us their best advice. So that I think spikes trust a little bit. We are now industry leaders, or we are meeting the minimum requirement of what it means to be a 21st century sport organization. And then in terms of socializing it with your membership, you know, in my world, we talk about tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them and repeat as often as required. And so you need a communications plan. And the way that I simplify communications plan is imagine, you know, you've got a list of all the audiences. So if we look at, um, if we look at a club, for instance, their list of audience would be the board, would be the staff, would be their coaches, their officials, the athletes, and maybe other member clubs in, in their community. So that, there's a lot of, uh, there, that's a lot of people that they need to communicate to. And so I think it's really important for people to understand when you're communicating, also understand the complexity around how you communicate to athletes, especially if they're minors, has to go through parents and obviously the coach. So being mindful of who needs to know, what do they need to know, what are the key messages, 
How are we going to deliver that information in a way that's going to allow them to understand it and maybe provide some feedback loops? The timing around it. So for instance, if I'm on a board, I don't want to learn about something after the fact. So the sequencing of how you're releasing information is really important. And then finally, why are you telling people something? Too often we're inundating people's emails without really carefully assessing why are we actually communicating this? So I'm hoping that, you know, when people understand that getting their policy house in order is just like baseline. If you can't do it, then I often say to clients, why is your door open? If you can't ensure that this is like the required legal framework, you need to have these in place to be able to open up your doors as a club. And if you aren't, not only are you not being good fiduciaries, you are exposing yourself and the membership to risk. And so it's just when they hear that, there's like an imperative, almost an ethical imperative to start doing all of that work. And what typically happens, Steve, is the board often I, when I speak to board of directors, they're like, well, I don't want to do that work. I'm like, okay, then maybe you shouldn't be on the board. You can go down and work on the, on a committee that's going to do marketing or events. Board of directors need to be fiduciaries, need to be the gatekeepers, if you will, of these policies. And if they're not doing that, or they don't enjoy that, then they're in the wrong role. So those are a couple of things that I would share. And, and my final piece would be, it's not enough just to communicate. We actually need to train. A lot of the work I'm doing now as a leadership coach is to ensure that the people who are in positions of power actually have the capacity to implement what the policy says we're going to need to do. So for instance, you know, if I take coaches right now, there's a lot more coming down the pike around how do we provide feedback? How do we release athletes? How do we communicate to an athlete that they're not good enough yet to make the team? Rule of two, you know, there's just so much now coming at coaches. My point is, if we're training them on the technical tactical, but not equipping them with the emotional intelligence to be able to deliver communication in a way that's healthy and holistic and respectful, we're missing out on an opportunity to avoid triggering the safe sport policies. So I think training is a really important component of policy implementation. Well, I totally agree. I think, I think, you know, a lot of policy work is reactive. And what I mean by that is we create them, we post them on our website and usually that's about it. And we wait till we need them. So I do think if we start changing the way we think about not only policy implementation, but just education, proactive, being proactive will really change the landscape of sport into uh, hopefully a, a much more positive environment. So I know we can go another 45 minutes to two hours talking about policies. And Let's governance. not. Let's cut it there. All right. Well, listen, it's been always a pleasure connecting with you this way, Steve. To learn more about the importance of policies, check out our blogs, which are linked in the episode notes below. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to not only sharing our vision of Sportopia, but also collaborating with our community to elevate sport. To have your say in Sportopia, email us at hello at sportlaw.ca or on social media at sportlawca to let us know what you want to hear about next. We look forward to talking to you again at our next episode. Bye.